All right. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back. And uh, not just welcome back to you. Welcome back to our guest, our first guest, our first returning guest. We all know him. We all love him. The king of cool, the godfather of game development in South Australia, the uh, the one and only Dan Thorsland. Welcome back. Oh, my God. I feel old. Thank you, Alex. Thank you to <laughs> <listeners>. <laughs> it's been a year, over a year since uh, we had you on last yeah, man, it was it was all like full on COVID. I think the last time we caught up, we were all locked in our houses, and you know there was no vaccine, and God knows what was going to happen in the world. And yeah, yeah, now there's a Dune movie out with no sequel. And, you know, <laughs> that was the takeaway from the years: the Dune movie with no sequel. <laughs> that was it. There's a Dune movie out. It says part one, but where's going to be part two? I'm upset. I'm upset. Yeah, but now they're talking Mass Effect sequel, so I'm, I feel better now. I saw that. I saw. Well, I mean, all I saw was a poster that said Mass Effect is returning or something like that mm. Mm, yeah. hopefully it's not one. some dopey 4k remaster <laughs> yeah cares? hashtag don't yes. you all have mobiles <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um sorry we hear that there is some uh exclusive content that you're bringing to the podcast um some first insider news on uh, something you might be cooking up in the background yeah, well, I, I'm I'm going to be kicking on at Flinders for another year. The widely spread rumor that I'll be leaving the state is still true, but I pushed oh. it out till 23. Um, oh, don't be disappointed. You'll be better off without me. No. I'm, 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 I'm the godfather. I should have like orange slices <laughs> in my face and, you know, having heart attacks and feels, right? I need that on um, your LinkedIn title, by the way. The godfather of game dev. <laughs> oh, God. Um uh, but yeah, so so one of the things I'll be doing at Flinders besides running our, our crazy virtual production facility is we're going to be working hand in glove with industry um, next year to start a Bachelor of um, uh, Games production, which is what we want to do, a Bachelor of Creative Arts. And, and, uh, and full credit to the people at Flinders, they really want to do it right. They want to make sure that it's something that is really hand in glove with industry. And I'm hip deep in lots of conversations across both VFX as well as game development in terms of what the real skills are that are needed by people, people coming into the business. And we want to build this thing from the ground up to really be that like the best in the country if possible, you know? And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. We haven't obviously aren't going to start talking about it until July next year when we we've got everything bolted in, but uh, expect lots and lots of Godfather knocks on the door to talk to industry. <laughs> we're going to run that metaphor into the ground today. Absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, we're going to be doing roundtables and a lot of reference and really trying to look at, like, the full stack of what game development looks like in South Australia now. Because, man, it, like, think about it a year. The first time we talked, we didn't have a publicly listed company here. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a federal game rebate coming here. You know. true. We, I think we had our 10% rebate, but then again, we may not have that next year because we're still getting a lack of information out of our locals. But, you know, there's a there's a big shift, yeah. there's a really big shift. And I expect by, by Christmas, we're going to get a lot of interesting news running down the pipeline in terms of what kind of scale production. I think Mighty Kingdom, the last time we talked, was probably around 80 people. And now I think they're around 140, yeah. 145. Like, That's just huge yeah. huge and it's you know it's not like the rest of the industry scraping like you know yeah. again from last time we talked we had no games companies were winning industry awards for growth and now we have three yeah yeah you know? yeah Odd games got second place for fast movers foxy and uh you know got first and mighty kingdom picked up the creative industry export award and you know there's so many years i went to that dinner and put in for that and was bitterly disappointed. And uh, it was really good, really good to see Phil standing up on that stage getting that because that's that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
So yeah. the um, so this new uh, uh, what what Bachelors do we call it? Of, yeah, we we're, we're going to be calling it the Bachelors of Creative Industries. Uh, so it's a BCA. Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. Bachelor of Creative Arts. And uh, and you know, currently what we're going to we're uh, planning on calling it is games production. So we want to be a little different than some of the other uh, courses and programs here to encapsulate storytelling mm. because Flinders has creative writing programs. We have acting programs. We have uh, theater programs. We do partner dance programs with TAFE. Like we really cover the whole gamut. And obviously we have our, you know, very highly acclaimed uh, visual and uh, bachelor of uh, visual effects and entertainment design. Boy, I can't believe I got choked on that. Um, <laughs> But, you know, we picked up the Rookie Awards two years in a row. We're always in the top 10, top 20 schools um, in terms of that. So we want to combine all of that and turn that into something that's really industry-facing uh, for students to come on board in 2023. And I think by then we'll obviously have, like, a, a really big local ecology of, of companies to work with because we're bound to attract some significant growth with that 30% rebate kicking in. And, um, and certainly the studios that are already here will just keep growing. You know, yeah, and then we got to work on keeping the indie scene warm. Yeah, that's right. I've seen some really good product coming out. Like, Mm. um, you know, there's a a couple of people that have just got in, gotten nominated for the uh, South Australian Screen Awards. So, um, yeah, I I wasn't a judge on that, Um, but I'll be interested to see what the outcome is. We don't want Mighty Kingdom to just take it out every time because you know, Mighty Kingdom. Yeah, they're fifty percent of the nominations, aren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, maybe it's just law of averages, right? Yeah. <laughs> how many how many games have they got in the market? How many have they had in the market for the past five years? Yeah, devs. But you know, we got we got to keep going. Actually, it's something yeah. probably worth, um, uh, I guess, talking about. I definitely want to come back to the the game dev part. But um, something mm-hmm. I did want to ask you because, um, you know, you're in a in a very unique position because you've been you know having to defend uh games for the you know in, in front of the government and then you know especially recently ga- defending games in front of psychologists which that's another thing i kind of want to go into as <laughs> oh, well you, you pick that one up huh? <laughs> I think, no, definitely I, definitely um yeah. we, we do our research <laughs> yeah oh yeah no stone unturned um oh my god i feel like i'm on lebron now <laughs> what's happening <laughs> no we are don't worry spoiler alert we're still on team game development don't worry um <laughs> Uh, so, but, uh, oh, what was I? Um, yeah, so something one had, oh, yeah, so you're in the unique position defending games, um, and then talking about indie games and indie game nominations. Is how much, like, do you do you see the indie games in Adelaide? Can you try and hear me formulate the question in my head as I say it? Like, how mm-hmm. much is there now to be like, all right, this is all we can do, you guys have to put something out, like. You, you guys have to kind of come up with a goose game. You have to come up with a, you know, uh, uh, oh my God, I'm, I'm blanking hard. The one yeah, with the like bugs and the critters. I hear you. you know, Hollow like, like the stuff that Apple are, yeah, or Holloway, yeah. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, um, based on average of the indie companies we got here, we've done really well, mm. you know. Uh, Kate Crozer said the other day, the CEO of the SCFC in, a, in the webinar during GCAP, we got the highest per capita in terms of game developers to human beings in the state. That's pretty good. Mm. And, you know, given just how beautiful a game Hollow Knight was and how well it did, given the, the number of studios we got here, I think we're doing okay. You know, I think we're doing okay. I don't think we need to worry about what Melbourne and Sydney does, but I think we need to look at 
what Melbourne, Sydney, and now Queensland, obviously with their fifteen percent, what what kind of ecology have they got, and and how much representation do they have from indie all the way up to big studio, and what do we want here? And I think that's the really important thing. Is my question to industry all next year is not just what kind of hire do you want, but what kind of business are you going to build? Because mm-hmm. I, I don't want to bring you know kids into a program and then say three years down the line, you know, you're going to be employable because of this and be dead wrong mm-hmm. and not have any of it here. You know, so I think Victoria has what it has because of its very consistent engagement with Film Victoria. It's gone back years, you know. So they they had to they really had to throw a lot of product into the market and have a lot of activity between League of Geeks and what they've got at the arcade for those hits to start coming out and obviously Apple has helped by going in and you know funding some of that stuff you know you know what Ken Wong's been doing with them so you know I think I think we're doing okay I think we're doing okay I think what we need to do a lot more of a lot more of is all be in the same place singing the same song. And I and and it concerns me, and I've heard a lot of it the past few months, is that we're starting to see like, ah, uh, you know, those guys at the big end of town, and the rebate only really services them. And what about the little guy? Come on, man. You know, everybody wins. If you want something more, as an indie developer, particularly out of one of the screen organizations, write a letter, go tell them. You know, I, I love listening to the piece he did with James Marshall, and he's spot on. They don't know who you are until you knock on their door mm-hmm. 20 times and mm-hmm. say the same thing over and over and over. Yeah, know? when he's like, write a letter because they yeah. have to respond. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but don't just rant in it and say, like, I hate you and you're annoying and you're boneheads, <laughs> even though they are. Yeah. And they, and they are. You know, it's like it's pre-election. They're just completely obsessed with trying to get re-elected. It's, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a glitch. But in the intervening years between elections, like have a really consistent engagement with them. But most importantly, work with each other. I mean, it was so nice seeing Matt Treviani hook up with the folks at Shark Jump when he started venturing out into switch territory. And, you know, I love the guys at Echo Lab and they're so collaborative. And they really helped a local film director, a friend of mine, Liam Somerville, get a hand up on using Unreal to make a music video. And it was a really beautiful outcome. And, and, and Darcy and everybody, man, they were just so in there, so, so helpful. And it's like the more we do that, the more we're out there showing that we're resilient and that we're tenacious, all the things that game developers are. And, but most of all, we love helping each other. The better they're going to come back to us and say, you know, these guys don't fight over every scrap of land and every dollar. They actually want to, you know, they want the ecology to grow. I think so, Acal- I, so I think stay focused on that. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. I was say I think Acolabs is a is a great little um, case study of what it can be because they being in that place feels like um, you know like the classic um, photo of the garage of what Apple started in or something yeah. like that where you're yeah, like yeah. all these great people started in this one spot. You know, you got Anthony Robinson, you got Melonhead, you mm-hmm. got uh, Tom and Darcy, like just. And as you just said, they're they're just willing to they're more willing to help out than to focus on their own kind of project. Not saying they're also incredibly driven on their own project, but they yeah, see yeah. the the value in helping others out. Well, and that and that's the point of having that kind of ecology is that you know if any one of those guys ends up having a publisher knock on their door, walk over to King William, and I guarantee you, Tony and Phil would open the door and say, "Yeah, what can we do to help?" You know? Yeah. And and they would. They would like never think that those guys don't care about the little guy. They absolutely care about the little guy. They they wouldn't be you know you know trying as hard as they can to build such notable you know 
place for for a lot of work to uh, to come in and hang off of and um if they didn't care about the little guy they totally do you know and mid-tier as well like making sure Jeanette's out there talking more about his enormous success like i, I really rate mm. what he's done you mm. know all original ip and multiple follow-ups and hits he's actually built a really sustainable practice of it but you know we also can't write off guys like you like i got a lot of admiration and, and i know you do too for how costa can pitch himself as both developer as well as like good businessman he knows how to do a presentation talking about him in the third person like he's not here <laughs> but that's really but that's really important you know yeah. it's it's really important to have people like that at all ages you know, I'll age out. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Godfather. Like I said, got to get the orange slice of my mouth and have the heart attack in the field. Man. Well, <laughs> you know, yeah. When you start yeah. growing tomato plants, we'll get worried. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, you, man, that'll never happen. You make an interesting point there, Dan, around, um, you know, knowing different disciplines in game development. I know you mentioned with this course um, through Flinders, it's, you know, it's not like at the end of the three years, you're guaranteed to have, um, you know, a job or a role in this. Is mm-hmm. there, like, what sort of things does it cover in that way? I mean, from what you can disclose. Um, and also, you know, does it touch upon, say, entrepreneurial activity and, you know, the business side of things as well as the creative side of being in the games industry? So, you know, the design and then the other stuff as well? Or does it sort of try to steer in one direction? Well, that's going to be a question going out. To, to the state really out to community like if you remember i had just started that virtual production stuff you know a couple of years ago and whoops looks like everybody loves it you know and <laughs> and we're still going like really strong i'm going to do an industry day and i'll definitely want to get you guys down to check out what we've been doing but we have the first student coming out of two years of virtual production stuff bonnie grant and you know she's amazing she's been you know year three and honors in virtual production in that studio every week. She knows Mm. every nut and bolt, knows the entire pipeline and process. Mm. But that occurred because industry kept coming in, like Mm. Tom and Jeremy from We Made a Thing and Melonhead was down and Game Devs and Monkey Stack were down coming to saying, well, this is what we would use the studio for. And it's like, yeah, cool. And then her lecturers would go back and say, all right, let's let's see if we can bake this into specialization within the program. The trick with university degrees is that they have to go through a lot of levels of compliance and stuff like that. So that's why I can't promise exactly what the nuts and bolts would mm-hmm. be like in 23. Yeah. But the intent is basically starting now because I'm in the midst of this heavy research project is look at, you know, what the you know from the virtual production stuff we're doing mm. the stage which is all unreal tech and metahumans and motion capture and rigging like there's so many transferable skills in there and then continuing to build more of what we do in our games program mm. that leans into interactive design uh, writing for games in terms of non-linear writing as opposed to linear writing all of that and again go back out to industry go this is what you want mm-hmm. this is where you see yourself mm. in two to three years because I know right now there's a big conversation around mobile games that having a, a, a story and a story that you can quickly add components to helps with the longevity of that free-to-play free game. But we also know that console games are full of you know seven mm. times the amount of content that a feature film's got in terms of dialogue and performance mm. and acting. So what part of those do we focus on? Where do we think industry is going to be? Is there going to be an Ubisoft or one of these big, big entities in in the state in three years' time? I hope so. Mm. You know, is there going to be one in Victoria? Probably. Mm. You know, is there going to be one in Queensland? Fifteen percent rebate? Definitely. Yeah. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> so so we want to, you know, not to dodge the question, but we want to build towards what that, you know, yeah. what what that funnel is. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to not look after indie developers, not at all. And I think we could dig into that a little on the podcast because I've just finished reading this document that came out of the UK and it's all about the fact that game developers are incredibly prized by virtual production people in the UK right now mm-hmm. because big surprise they can make beautiful things yeah. that render yeah. at 30 frames a second yeah. right yeah. and they, and that'll be a component of what we're trying to do so what does that's why it's called games production what does games production look like as a holistic piece yeah. how many programs can we put together in a bachelor's um, that addresses the the key points of that market so, and, and that's the thing there's this such cross pollination between the games industry and uh, this new virtual production stuff as well so uh, do you see it as you know uh, having sort of those two pillars going forward in like the same way um, you know through education like is there going to be a lot of mm. uh, similarities between the two and a lot of sharing of knowledge between the two as well yes yeah, yeah ab- absolutely because yeah. I think I'm looking at like a lot of stuff as part of this project looking around the country and also around the world and I'm noticing a lot of the studio and lab models where uh, an education facility has a very strong tie to an industry partner and like animologic specifically. That's kind of a why they build this foundation of what you're doing in yep. terms of working in 3d and doing surfacing, lighting and texturing. And then you kind of branch it off in later years where you might specialize in real time yep. or you might specialize in hyperphoto real and, and rendered, you know? Mm. Um, but I would, I would suspect that over the years, those lines will just keep moving closer and closer to each other. Cause like nanites and UE five is just crazy. Yeah. Like yeah. there's yeah. no reason not to do a real time environment now, really, you know, yeah. whether you're going to comp it in or put it on an led wall, you might as well be doing a real time environment in UE five because yeah. directors of photography and directors and everyone else are just going to love the fact that they've got a, a full, completely tweakable world just sitting in front of them on a soundstage and can do whatever they want, you know. So, again, it's looking how far the industry's come mm. in the two years I've been in education. Mm. Uh, you know, I think there will be, like you said, a couple of pillars, and but specializations. Yeah, know? for sure. Story is the important part. Like, nobody really knows what story is going to look like in and the it, metaverse. Yeah, and it, and it seems like something that will become more and more important as uh, – yeah, as we get, I mean, right now you look at the metaverse as a concept and it's pretty broad. It's pretty, you know, it's like a sandbox, mm-hmm. but it's 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 primed for having these sort of narrative um, narratives interwoven into those experiences as well. Yeah, and that, and that's, again, that's part of the things I have to take into consideration. Like I'm going to be working with all the lecturers and everyone else. Oh, look, I'm not a teacher. I'm not an mm. academic. I'm an industry guy. And I'm really grateful for the fact that they gave me two years to kind of find out what industry would want out of a student and see whether or not it worked. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to spend the next couple of years looking at not just where industry is saying they're going to be in 2025, but we have to assume that there's going to be a lot of overlap on metaverse. Mm. You know, Facebook is going to pour a huge billions, amount of billions <laughs> yeah. into like, you know, how do we create a, this, this digital representation of you that now has a visual form and moves and emotes. Like how do we educate somebody to do yeah. that yeah. In, by 2023? I have no idea. Yeah. You know, are, are they going to start at a rational base and yeah. use what, what Epic's got out there? I don't know. Yeah. Are they just going to do bitmojis? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. The good thing with the um, the virtual production part of this degree is like that's uh, amongst many, that's one of your carrots for this degree is because yeah. especially with COVID um, and now the world post-COVID is, you know, a lot of 
things are looking to have the flexibility to learning online. But one of the flaws of learning online is you lose that that networking ability, um, the ability to kind of collaborate. It just gets done better in person. So a lot of industry uh, places within the industry need to learn how to actually bring people in to communicate. And I think yeah. something like the void needs people physically there. You need to be there to collaborate. So if you're going to, if you bring them in for that, you can start bringing them in for other aspects of it. And then like learning online, don't get me wrong. It's, it's a, it's a great strength and it's a great benefit, mm. but there's, there's still, you know, you can go on for ages highlighting the benefits of just being in the actual place. I, I couldn't agree more, man. Going all the way back to my, my ancient days as a comic book editor, the difference between an artist who had been in industry a year and was working from home, and most of them did. You know, We just FedEx boards around, and most of them were working all on their own with no peer interaction. So the guy that would do pencils would never meet the guy who did colors or you know, the next person who would do finishes and inks and lettering, never. But yeah. the ones that would form a studio would find other artists in their region form a studio. Their work would elevate really quickly, particularly in terms of technique. They they would they would get a lot of feedback, and you could see that there's this really interesting collaborative piece just being around other artists that are working in the same craft. And I think, you know, that's where a university plays a really significant role. If you're in a training program or you're doing remote education, like you said, and your class is really tiny. And then suddenly you're put into a studio that's got, you know, 1,300 employees like some of the ones in Canada have, you're going to be lost. Mm. You know, you're, you, how do you, you know, how do you have the emotional resilience as an artist to really navigate that? It's hard. So, so we need the benefit of being able to do remote work for people who are developed and competent artists, but they need to be able to come in. Uh, you know, into the metro area or into an education hub somewhere and then share a lot of the work that they do and collaborate with other people. And you're right. If you look at the size of Echo Lab, even if you don't look at all the other entities in the Epworth building, you just look at those folks. You know, they're five people that work together every day. And, they, and it shows in their work. It absolutely mm. shows in their work. It doesn't have to be at a huge scale. So I, so I think I'm, I'm kind of hitting two points there. Like I'm agreeing as an artist, you need to sh uh, spend time with other artists. But also as an artist, you need to be able to work on a production overseas across, you know, what could be 300 virtual staff and figure out how to carry those social skills across. Because mm. I think in the future, you're already starting to see the, the, the discussion around the effect of air travel and carbon. We're mm. going to have to deal with it. You know, yeah. Scotty from marketing can't be on his <laughs> deny fest with Macron forever. Like, yeah. You know, and it's really tough for Australia. There's 27 million of us. And we're stuck on this tiny little island. The only way you can get there to work on a big production is to get on a plane. Mm. So how, how do we fix that? How do we create, you know, uh, um, a different work culture where you, you are going to be able to get that in the room collaborative feedback from people, maybe if you're not working on the same project, but then hopefully be able to go home and, uh, and be able to work on like a really high-end production without ever having to leave your state. And I think they'll be both. Mm. I think we'll see more people working in, you know, Substance or Blender or Maya or whatever it is, or Unreal, definitely. You'll see more people more commonly working on that from like year 10 up because everyone's keen on that down high schools. So it's it's like, you know, hanging out with people who work in Photoshop. It's like, yeah, 
course. Oh my god, that'd be you amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, but it, but you know, but it's going to be a natural event when everything shifts from flat to three D, Alex. Right? Like yeah. every artist is going to have to sculpt. They're going to yeah. have to sculpt, and then they're probably going to have to. I hate to say it, rig. <laughs> oh my god, they may have to optimize. You know, but they, but it, but the fact that <laughs> but the fact that all these art students are now like you know it's like instead of sitting around in front of a bunch of easels here in front of, in front of a bunch of workstations, yeah. but you're still being artists. So, you know, I, I think that's really important because that now you're an artist who can export and share their work in real time all over the world. And the void is, you know, it's a two way mirror. You can come to the void and you can do amazing exportable stuff. But some of like Cam's big ideas, Cam Magnus is the technician who really is the, the brain trust uh, behind it. He and Jason Bevan, he also likes the idea of being a guy who's done set work and film of having people being able to dial into the facility because we're running motion capture, putting on VR rigs and be on the set without ever having to get on a plane mm. and stand right next to the actor that they're working with, you know, um, through, mm. you know, with uh, passive cameras onto it. So, you know, and then share that soundstage and work on the lighting and everything else, which I definitely think is, is where we're going to push into the future. You know, mm. that's so interesting. That whole concept of remote, uh, working, both being on, you know, present on the set of a movie without actually being there. Such an interesting concept. Um, and obviously game development, um, you know, it's typically done online, so you can do that, yeah. but, but to transfer that concept to it, to the movie industry or the film industry, it's. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Well, I think, you know, and I think it, it has benefits for the games industry because, you know, the great thing about the games industry, we're, we're lucky we're in South Australia is you guys can head down to Light Adelaide and, you mm. know, do the thing that Pat runs and, mm. and hang out with other people in the business and talk to them all the time. That's that's really, really valuable, mm. you know. But, um, but in terms of working on a distributed game, as you know, it can often be really soul-crushing because mm. a lot of the games tasks are deep, deep, highly technical right and it feels like you know you run out of energy at a certain point and you have nobody to turn to and mm. go i just can't get my head around this mm. and to to find a way to um uh, to turn that into a more collaborative and more energetic thing that represents something like a 48 hour game jam mm. where people are participating from all over the world that's where i think that that end point of the metaverse could be really helpful like yeah. really, really helpful. Yeah. You know, if you're standing in a room full of people and you're gesticulating and you got a virtual whiteboard and you're flowing out with well, the first time user experiences on a game, that's 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 compelling, you know. And and I think it's achievable. Yeah. I mean, a, does as younger developers, does that mean anything to you? Does that sound like something you'd want to do? Oh, most definitely. Yeah. That's yeah. that's yeah, I mean, you're right, the power of actually being in the same room just to mm. hash out ideas and brainstorm. It's it's you you see primitive versions of of that using you know shared whiteboards and things like that but to be actually present in the same room in some sort of you know with telepresence that would be that would be a huge um huge benefit yep. when we spoke We're not to- staring at each other's faces on zoom yeah, right like, geez, like yeah oh well, yeah that and also <laughs> the whole like can't look i can look into your eyes and you can look into my eyes but we're not looking into eyes at the same time <laughs> like yeah, exactly. it's still off screen that's yeah. a that's the one bit i found the most uh disorientating about you know doing things online is not being able to make that like look the person in the eye that's been the hardest Mm. thing but even um ashley van wingard when we had um, her on and she explained that she's trying to set up these uh processes um when she was at wargaming um with like the programmers and having these virtual whiteboards costas talking Mm. about and just no one logs on 
Like mm. it needs, I, I, it needs to be that um, in-person interaction at least, at least for a bit. Even if it's a, it's a hybrid between a work from home and, as you said, they might be interstate or in another country. Mm. If it's like a, a like a like a node setup, like you have an office just rented out, like all these shared workspaces are like the flavor mm. of the the month right now. Um, let's say decade. But, you know, you have a floor that's owned by Sony, you have a floor that's owned by Ubisoft or something like that. It doesn't matter what, if they're artists, if they're programmers, but if they're going in and they're in the same area and it's like as like a node network, like NBN, you know, like you can't get them to go straight to the States or wherever, but you can get them to converge into a point. That's got to be better than just working in, conf- what do you call it? Solidary confinement, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I, I get it. And and I actually think that's a really interesting vision you've got as well is that you're in a shared workspace where you may be breaking off and doing very independent tasks in terms of what you're doing. But that ability to walk into a virtual core in the middle of it and say, look, I need expertise and blah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, is anyone interested? Yep, I'll see you in 30 minutes. And the two of you do a telecall. And you hash some ideas out, you know, and vice versa, which is, I, I think, yeah, that's, that's cool. And, 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 you know, why would we bother wearing AR headgear otherwise? Yeah. You know, because other way, it's kind of annoying. Like, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't like, I don't like VR at all. I don't like being closed off. Well, imagine, that. imagine sitting in a, you know, doing your work strictly in VR with the technology we have today to yeah. have this, this big, you know, say Oculus on your head for six hours a day, like, Ugh. yeah. Is it <laughs> soul crushing? Yeah, it is. It is. You know, and and I think, you know, we're biological beings. We can't evolve as fast as the stuff we're slapping on our heads. You know, yeah. and and like you're saying, Alex, it's not not being able to have that kind of eye contact and read other people and feed off each other's energy. And you're a very like a very social digital artist. I think that's that's definitely the kind of person that you are. Costas, I think as well as the same as like your people who actually like interacting with other people. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you wouldn't do this podcast. Of course, there are also people who just want to be left alone and do deep work. But you look at any kind of screen production. And that's, for me, that's the big thing. We need to democratize screen production. There should be no barriers between linear and nonlinear content creation. Mm-hmm. You know, everything's digital now, everything. Sometimes you have a live actor. Sometimes you have a motion capture actor. Sometimes you have a scripted NPC or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it's it's just its screen experience. And, you know, the, the stuff about screen production is that you have people who generate a lot of the the kind of energy and nuance and performance and subtlety on, you know, a stage, because that's how humans work together. But then it may go into a distributed pipeline where people are just doing things like color correction and a lot of long, not necessarily menial and meaningless tasks, but like film editors don't want a whole bunch of people in the room. They're like super concentrated. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with like when you're doing QA on a game, last thing you need a bunch of, you know, people jumping up on your desk. It's like, yeah. you know, i got to play this for six hours to find out what all my reproduction steps are. And some people love that. They mm. love going down that, you know. But in, we need to create a flexible workspace that accommodates both of them, you know. And to me, that always goes back into education. The thing you learn and the thing I learned in university is – what a jackass I was certainly in the first year. You know, I, I was the guy in high school who read everything and watched every movie and I knew who film directors were because I was the only one who gave a crap, you know? Mm. So I go into, I go into film school and there's 300 of me and it's like, yeah. I'm nobody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, literally just like, Oh, they're all just as smart as I am. It's not more so. <laughs> what do I do? You know, and then you spend years kind of socially evolving into like, what's the thing you're really, really good at and how do you share that with other people? 
And I think any game development is that first step out of uh, just learning practical skills and learning how to work in small teams to going into professional practice. I think what's important for you guys is we need consistent money mm-hmm. on the table. We need to get investors to understand that, you know, Team Cherry wasn't a one-off, you know, Foxy wasn't a one-off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to get, if you, if you can drop 3 million bucks on a feature film, you can definitely drop 300 K on an indie game. Mm-hmm. Your, your odds of success are probably exactly the same now, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think that's where I'd love to, you know, really focus on. Cause that's the thing I discovered running this virtual production facility. We had no idea, you know, we didn't know how the tech worked. There was no standard. There was no terminology. There was like literally just like meh. They used LED walls, Mandalorian with Unreal. Let's try that. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly it's like everyone is doing it. Like Afters has announced their stage that they got good federal cash to build, and they're opening it up in February. Like yeah, we were yeah. two years ahead of them here in wow. little old Adelaide. You know, it's like that's cool. But you know, re- reproducing that—it's yeah. a matter of just taking the technology and using it in a way to create a piece of content that. You would you you probably wouldn't have thought of until you saw something that you know mimicked what you're trying to do. And it's I worth, don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And it's it's definitely worth noting um, that how hard you work to get those screens. Like they weren't even university property; they were literally the only LED screens in South Australia, and they were used for concerts, weren't they? And and big God bless Novatech. Yeah, Thank you, Leco. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. I rung him up. It was right in the middle of COVID. And I was like, "Are you using them?" And he's like, "Yeah, not really." Yeah. Like, Can we borrow them? And I was like, "Yeah." Like six months later, do you want them back? <laughs> Maybe. You know, <laughs> it took a while, yeah. but, you know, but, but, but it, it, to me, it's like, again, that's, you know, maybe that's the thing that I, I probably can do a little more than most people. Cause I've just tried goofy stuff my whole life. I built a, a, a flash website based on a comic book back, back in 1997. That's how long I've been mm. just spinning wow. the wheel and see what comes out the other end. Yeah, no, really. I'd love cool. to see what accessibility standards that meets in these <laughs> days. <laughs> Man, oh, I think it was like Flash 1.5. I don't know <laughs> what version it was. And we're talking yeah. like back in the days of dial-up. You know, it was pretty crude. Yeah, yeah. What, was your, what was your turnaround like back then when you were when you were FedExing boards around? Like, and, you oh, know, it was overnight, depending yeah. on you were yeah oh, wow. it was quick yeah like, was, like the, was the production quick and then and then going into yeah. you know when it was all online was it was it a big change in or was oh, it oh man i got yeah. i got stories to tell around that i have to i swear <laughs> i was at the literally right there at the extinction event the first extinction event for what was called a comic book colorist back in the 80s so um you know you, you know uh, akira the film yeah. and that it was originally a manga and it was black and white and obviously, and this guy, Archie Goodwin, who was this like amazing editor, he was an incredible human being. He's a beautiful guy. He loved that series. And he says, I really want to bring that comic book series to America, but he was working at Marvel and Marvel said, well, only if you put it in color, you know, and you know, uh, Standard. Tetsuma, I think his name is the artist's name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The color process, I swear to God in America, like straight up into the late eighties for comics, was that you had somebody take a piece of parchment paper that was a photocopy of a comic book page, and it was A4 sized, and they had a set of pre-measured dyes in CMYK, so cyan, magenta, yellow, and K would be black, and each one was a 25% increment more saturated. So you literally had 64 colors. Do the quick math there, programmers. 64 (laughs) colors to create the color on a comic book page, which is why back then all the comic books had these massive swatches of black color. And in fact, the Hulk is green 
He was supposed to be gray, but he's green because they forgot one of the colors. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. The cover of the comic, he's gray, and on the inside, he's green because they just goofed. And <laughs> wow. the way it was done is that the artist would paint it up, and they would draw C50, M25, Y0, blah, 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 blah. And they'd say what the color of that shape was made out of. And it gets worse. And I got shipped down to this warehouse in South Carolina where literally a bunch of old retired people would sit with X-Acto knives and this piece of stick-on plastic called Duo Shade, which was saturated dot patterns in 25% increments. Mm. And they would cut the shape out. Here's the Y plate. Stick on a piece of plastic. Yeah. Here's the K plate stick. Here's the you know M plate oh stick. Gosh. Here's the C plate. What a process! Can you, what a process! <laughs> yeah. To create ugly color. So Otomo, the Japanese artist, looks at that and goes, "I don't want that on my work. I want these smooth, graded, beautiful. I want it to look like Disney. I want it to look really smooth, graded, rich color." And they're like, "It's a Japanese comic book," says the guys at Marvel. It never saw enough copies to break even because they had to do it in a, like a painter and drum scanned way. It was a really expensive process to do, you know true range color but meanwhile this clever guy steve olaf says you know and i'm, I'm learned how to program in dos and i figured out to, how to create basically it was a really rudimentary version of photoshop and i'm gonna I'm, i've built this software just to do uh color comic books and then print it straight out the film oh. skipping the whole process mm. of the coding the page up cutting this minor out sticking mm. out so long story short Steve does Akira. It looks absolutely beautiful, like a tenth of the cost of traditional separation with a full range of color, right? Whatever you could get in, you know, in CMYK and that, and that color space could do it. And within 12 months, nobody who didn't know how to use that software had a job. Yeah. All the colorists were well, just wiped out. Yeah. Wiped out. They were just gone. Just like, that. like I, I think stories like that and um, the history of it, I think while you're, you know, developing this course i think they do have a very important part in the education not not like as a as a focus but a good few week intensive of this is like a respect of this is where you came from this is like not because uh, it, it helps i feel as as um as an artist if i may <laughs> um it adds to what you're do like i wanted to be a texture artist so bad because there's a storytelling to it and mm. when we learned texture art, even though Substance Painter was becoming the industry standard and stuff like that, we were still taught from day one um, the, quote, old way, which is still the new way from the story you just told. But it was all Photoshop-based. It was you create yep. your roughness, uh, your metallic, your specular, your albedo, all yourself, all manually. You looked at It made you look at forums um, that have been archived from like maybe 10, 12 years ago. And you hear that people are sharing, were sharing images of leaves to use as their metallic map because they're like, oh man, this photo of a leaf, the texture is perfect. Where now we're, we're kind of spoiled with the fact of Substance Painter. I can mm. automatically plug in um, Rust. I can automatically plug in Chrome yeah. or something like that. So I, as a new artist, would have no understanding of the properties of that material unless it was broken down and said, no, this is where it comes from. If you have a wooden door, it's more worn at the bottom if it's an outside door because the wood flows, the water flows down and starts to expand the wood and you get moss. If you get a smart material in substance paint and you just chuck it in, it's just going to go, okay, old wood. It doesn't know that narrative style to it. And I think ah, having a bit of that, cool. how, yeah, having a bit of that granularity helps appreciate what the medium actually is. So, uh, um, Alex, that's an incredible insight. It really is. If you think about it, what you're talking about is that 
the ability to scan the world, to use photogrammetry, procedural, AI-driven, whatever it is, to create something that has a total likeness to what it's meant to be. Mm. But we know as people consuming a piece of fictional content that if it doesn't have the hand of a designer, if it doesn't have a hand that directs your eye or a production designer, somebody who gives a logical coherence to what you're looking at, it falls right into that uncanny valley. Mm, It doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel convincing. It's a it's a really insightful comment because I, I we used to always say in comics back in the day, uh, these special effects movies they'll never get us. We're comic book guys. We have an unlimited budget. If you can draw it on the page and make it look, you know, consistent with perspective, light, and color, people believe that a man can fly. That the Hulk is you know what he is. That Galactus is the size of a skyscraper. If you can pull it off on page in a convincing way, people buy into it. But that's because the artist would take you into a world that the artist had designed. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're talking about is that merging of you can use all the technology in the world to create an object that looks just like it is in the real world. Well, why do you want to do that as part of a story? Why do you mm-hmm. want to see that as part of a story? Why are we captivated by looking at things that have that artist's hand on it? That's really insightful. So for you, my question to you, because I'm, I'm in my research mode now. <laughs> so, so as an artist, does understanding the, like the evolution of texturing or essentially painting and surfacing, like understanding the history of how it came to be and where it is, do you think that helps you not only in appreciation of the work as an artist, but also help you kind of prepare your, for yourself for how it may change and how to like always hold on to the core of what you do as an artist? That's a very leading question. Yeah. yeah. You get what I'm digging at? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think definitely to an extent, I think, um, yeah, those, uh, you know, having to do things manually at the start with the idea that it gets better, um, like, you know, cutting your teeth on it really helps. Mm. Um, yeah. Get an appreciation for it. Um, understand where it's going, not going too far back. Like um, there are certain parts where, you know, your own independent research will need to kick in. For example, like you, you wouldn't go as, as an exaggeration. You wouldn't go as far back as saying how they would paint on things in the ancient, in ancient times or something like that, because mm. it doesn't serve a purpose unless it's project based. Um, you need to paint on vases or something like that. But um, I think having that ability, so I, I, I would feel as though a common denominator amongst the students who end up becoming these professionals have the inclination to look into these things more. They, you know, they would start looking at the real world. They take their own photos. Um, like, mm. you know, the lecturers like Shane Bevan, he does always does like a good photo dump of textures and things like that. They're already looking at this kind of stuff, but some educations can sometimes, uh, you know, um, cater to um, just getting everyone through the door. So they're not really yeah. um, entertaining that idea that much. But if you developed it in a way where that was not only encouraged, but it was exposed to people who aren't thinking that way, um, it might not be their fault. They might just not be thinking that way. That, you know, everything has a story to it. You know, scratch marks in a certain place on a table are um, indicative of a narrative, you know. Uh, and that's that's from the narrative side, but from the tech side, um, I, de- I think definitely the worth of going back to because Photoshop is still a, a used application, just not, not so much in mm. texturing unless you're hand painting, but it still does all the everything you're trying to achieve. And it's while you're doing it, it's an easy explanation of why a roughness map is black and white as opposed to why a normal map mm. is purple and shades of blue and 
um, if you have a, and I, I feel, I feel if you have an innate understanding of the technology, it will make you become a better storyteller and a, and, and everyone's job in a game development pipeline is to tell a story. Even if you're the programmer, even if you're the marketer, you have to tell a story about what that game is. So anything that helps you understand the story, I think is just a feather in your cap, really. Yeah, and I think you 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 landed it perfectly there. Is that all of these tools, what tool not to use is what defines your ability as an artist. Mm-hmm. What is irrelevant to what you're trying to do? That's it's that in a in an overwhelming era where every possible artist tool is coming online and content creation tool is coming online, what not to use? What's the mm-hmm. core of the experience? And that that's that's really interesting. It's kind of like programming as well. I mean, when you when you learn programming, you know, if you're a like you're a really good coder if you can understand the 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 logic behind it, you know, at the base level. Like if you do programming and you learn all the way down to logic gates and, you know, binary and 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 you can map out almost architecture at the lowest logic um possible you're going to write better code. You know, you're going to write more efficient mm-hmm. code. You're going to, you're going to be able to explain as to why you did the, the steps that you did, as opposed to now when you program, you can program in, you know, any language, you can do really high level code, pull in any library and do all these things, which is all fine and good. But when it comes down to say from the programmer's perspective, delivering the best experience as it being fast and, you know, uh, innovative and, and usable, um, to, you know, it matters. It matters when you're, you know, importing libraries. It matters how fast the the code runs, and and that mm. all comes down to understanding the basics at the, at the most basic level to be able to write um, efficient code. So you're right. It's 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 the same in any way. It's 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 um the history and understanding the history and how the practice evolved um, mm. as it went on, and then almost. Almost by having that understanding, you can see where it might go in the future, or you can improve the practice in that way as well. Mm. That's what yeah, I and and I think the 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 outcome that you're pushing all of this through to make sure that you're finding out what the technique or the method or the approach is, whatever you're doing, is what is that user experience? And I think that's where game development is really unique because if you give, you know. A bunch of buttons and an interface to somebody to mess with and they don't get it they don't know what to do mm. you've completely lost yep. you've expended <laughs> thousands of hours and we've all been there where it's yeah. like oh i didn't even think of that yeah, why are yeah. they doing that <laughs> and, it, and, you know? and it doesn't matter how it doesn't matter how good the buttons look it's you know no it's, not it, at all it's <laughs> the it does the user does the player understand how to play is the game or how to, to interact that's yeah. it yeah is there a call to action you know yeah, it's really interesting, and see, and you can see the parallel between what you're saying. It's like I had a really great lunch with one of our, our students today, Tina. And a big shout out to Tina. She's doing like she's been there for almost five years because she's doing science and engineering and creative writing. Oh wow! You know? and, and she she wants to be good at both. And I'm like, you are the model of what a future student is going to look like. Where you know, and she's even talking about like even in some of the law classes they're taking, they're starting to learn how to script in Python. And one of the student projects she did was all about building a front end form for a customer intake process for a legal firm and how proud she was that she was building an array on the back end. And I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. great. But at the same time, she's like, what kind of writing classes should I take? And who's your, who influenced you as a writer? And I was like, 
Stan Lee. It's long. Time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and I, and, and I think that's, what's great about, and I really I'm full praise to this podcast is it's evolved since, you know, the first time it's on you're, you're going into these. I mean, I love what Susanna Emery is doing over mm. at USA. I, I love her approach and her genuine love of games. And the fact mm. that you have a composer in there as well, you're looking at each discipline revealing the core of the artist and why that artist is excited about working in games. And I guess that comes down to it. It's like Flinders is an arts college and has been an arts college for over 50 years. Like it's got really deep foundations in culture and arts and writing and theater and like, you know, and screen, screen, screen. Kirsty Stark, one of our alumni, just picked up an Emmy Award and so super humble about wow. it, but it's an awesome show. Good honor. International Emmy Award, like that's pretty cool. Mm. And um, and all of it comes out of that need to create a valid cultural experience using whatever your platform and method is. And I think university needs to be a place where you can learn the basics of how you operate either as a visual artist or an experienced designer or a narrative designer and then find out how to hone your craft into the platform that you want to go in. And, you know, take it from an old fart like me, you have no idea where you're going to end up in 35 years. Mm. No idea. Like if you told me when I was sitting there like writing letter columns for Superman comics on a manual typewriter, <laughs> manual, chunk, 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 chunk. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to be making, you know, video games in Australia in 20 years. <laughs> Who is that voice come from? Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's your future self, Dan. Inhaling too much. You're going to be a godfather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of some yeah. city you haven't even probably heard of yet. Australia. Oh, definitely not. Are you kidding me? Like, everyone kept asking me, how'd you find Adelaide? I just took a wrong turn. <laughs> Supposed to be Sydney, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What um? So uh, I gotta ask then. I, I know, I know, we, we've we've briefly talked about it, but what what pulled you back to the states? Why 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 are you abandoning us? Ah, <laughs> uh, dude, you know, downstairs there's a beautiful sixteen year old boy, yeah. and um, he needs family around him, and I ain't got no family here. You know, I'm, I don't want to be sad about it, but I'm on my own. My marriage didn't work out. And, uh, and I'm a workaholic, like, mm. you know, it's always parenting and job and everything else is a distant third. So I haven't got a partner or anything down here and I don't think that'll ever happen. So uh, it'd be really good to get close to where my sister lives and have family support around and Matt's 16 and he's just getting to that point where he's starting to think about who he's going to be in his future self mm. and being two hours from New York city. would be really good for him because it'll give him a lot of opportunity to go some, some cracking art schools if he wants to. And he's an amazing visual artist. I think you might've seen that father's day gift he drew for me. Like yeah. hey, that's pretty good. Yeah. I may say so. He's yeah. pretty good. And he writes and he codes in Python. It's like, it's crazy. Wow. And he taught himself Japanese in six months. It's like, Oh my ah, God. Yeah. What am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and at the end of the day, it's cost of living was the big ticket for me. Like after I got divorced, I didn't get a lot of money out of the house, and there's no way I could put a deposit in this crazy real estate market. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a huge problem for folks your age. Like there is a big generational issue with just being able to afford to live here, and the rental and the way they treat renters, you just second class citizens. They punch you around like golf balls. Mm -hmm. Whereas where my parents live, two hours outside of New York, houses under two hundred grand everywhere. Whoa, steady supply, well. super cheap super cheap yeah. you know but will i ever ever stop talking to you guys no way oh, yeah. i'll always always be you know we'll we'll, we'll work out that telecommute yeah, right? yeah. Oh, absolutely <laughs> i mean that's a good I mean, like, 
reason as yeah. any to to move back home. So I'm glad you told us <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. It's all yeah. it's all it's it's very personal, you know. And you know, part of it is also is that like I I literally have been dealing with the government here since I stepped off the plane. Like I was in you know industry workshops and stuff because Rat Bag was a really big deal in the Labor government, the Rand government at the time. Um, it was it was very important to them, and it's it's just refusing to change. It's it's not acknowledging the value of what people like you do, and it just shits me. Yeah. <laughs> I just like I really want like I really do. I want to put folks like you in front of them and go, all right, here's ten people, probably a little nicer and less antagonistic than me, who are all born here, that are saying the same thing, right? Listen to them because they'll vote. Right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, and and I think that's it's really important to remove myself I, I mean i so appreciate anybody finding my opinion of any value in my advanced years i really do like i was <laughs> saying to somebody the other day like it, it really warms my heart that anyone calls me up for advice like no. are you kidding me <laughs> yeah. like I'm a, I'm a dinosaur but um but you know and, and it's it's really great to see that that folks like you're coming through and actually learning how to create uh, an industry representation so good on you you know and the, the more the merrier like you, you just got an all-star hit list in terms of the podcast so you know yeah, i appreciate it being being your first second opera it's like it's like being on the saturday night live <laughs> too many times am i gonna be the next steve martin or the guy that's like, <laughs> adam sandler yes yeah. Oh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my god that's close to home <laughs> You're uh, you're the Andy Kaufman, and no one's sure if this is real or not. <laughs> oh my God, that's dark. Yeah. I feel like it's dark, but uh, I appreciate. Yeah. I'll take that. <laughs> I feel like having uh, having Dan on is like a, a yearly thing now. It's like the State of the Union, you know. <laughs> he comes on, he tells us about the industry as a whole, and then <laughs> where it's going. And <laughs> uh, look, at, I, I am optimistic. Like you know, I, I was just. Swatch, swapping some emails with IGA before you guys dialed in. And um, yeah, man, you know, you, you're doing great. The, the community here is amazing. How it's rebuilt since the GFC just blows my mind. Mm. You know, when, when Chrome, when the GFC hit and, and Chrome basically just called me from the airport and said, we're going to meet you in a cafe and give you a list of names and you're going to fire them all today, Dan. You know, whoa. and it's just like, yeah, whoa. oh yeah, it was brutal. And then Oh, half the studio was, and I was on the list. You're fired and go fire another 19 people. <laughs> oh, Have a nice day. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. oh it was gruesome. What and was we, that like? like yeah. form, oh, it's, it's crushing. Yeah. It's crushing. But that's, you know, that's where it was because we were relying on American dollars. We were only thinking in one way as, you know, we weren't thinking that we had a right to make our own story and, you know, good on you, Ari and Will for, Mm. proving that now you can make incredibly successful original ip you know mm. and death and mighty kingdom you know yeah, yeah. manner's cool man i like playing it yeah 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 but that's one of the ones up for the awards is it uh, i think so i think it's avis manacosta i think i think it's yeah i think it's avis i can't remember what the yeah yeah is. i think so yeah i know gabby's dollhouse was and i know henosis is yeah damien uh, and the those folks? Yeah, Dollhouse and I've got it written here. Yeah, Gabby's Dollhouse and so yeah, oh yeah, Ava's Manor. Yeah, yeah. Ava's Manor, yeah. Along with yep. uh yeah, Panosis and, and um Frog Princess, and, Joy Ever After. And Kathy. Ka it's Kathy's game, isn't it? That is, Frog yeah. Princess? Kathy's game, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's good to see Kathy so active. Like she's been kicking around for a while, but boy, like she and Patrick are so committed to mm. keeping that 
thread yeah. running in in Adelaide game developers and, and Arthur I, I Archie it's really helped. Yeah, 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 yeah. Arthur is a, yeah. I love Arthur. He, yeah. I, he actually, he, I owe him a phone call too. Oh, nice. <laughs> he just always has a smile on him. That guy. Yeah. He's the nicest always. guy. He yeah. gave me a hug always. once. I didn't know what to do. Like, <laughs> Somebody likes me. This is weird. <laughs> oh my god. He's a good contact. He's, he's great. He's great. Yeah, no, they, no, that's no. the thing. It's like look at look at the community we have here now. That mm. did not exist when Chrome collapsed. Like there are some unbelievably talented guys like Adam Holland's head and, and, you know, Joe Edson and I could, the list just goes on and on and on. And, you know, guy in Etawira is kicking around mm. now. He was, he was one of that crew. Um, he didn't get lose it in the first cup, but he got, he lost in the second cup. They were so talented. And other than Kim, I don't think any of them have come back into the industry and that's tragic. Yeah, was it was Tragic. it was it Chrome? Well, I'm, again, I I don't know Chrome. too much about the history. Chrome that a lot of the staff moved to Canada or something. They got um, mm. it was a company that a lot of game developers went. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm mixing it up. Was it or maybe um, it was well, Ratbag or something? No, like Ratbag. A lot of those guys ended up going into like Pandemic and some of the Eastern states. Like Tony Albrecht went and worked for yep. Pandemic for a while. Todd Hutchinson did as well. You know, he's one of the ex Ratbag dudes. And the other batch got picked up by Chrome, the ones that, that stayed okay. here. Yeah, yeah. And um, no, when Chrome collapsed, a lot of them uh, um, just retired. Their family yep. said enough. You know, this is the second time. We've seen a studio collapse from underneath you because Ratbag, obviously, Americans just pulled the pin on it four months after the sale. Yeah. And I was out of there by then. I wasn't there anymore. Yeah. I, I saw it coming for once and uh, I was working at Kojo when um, when the pin got pulled. It was pretty brutal. Yeah. Those studios like Chrome and, um, and Ratbag, I know that, I remember from having previous conversations with you that, you know, one of the problems at the time is the, maybe telling a story about Dr. Mike having to upload something you oh. have to go to a certain point and the amount of money it would cost just to get the first press of the game and would would it have if it was in today's post gfc you're in adelaide mm. in 2021 let's say and you're getting these these proposed rebates and stuff would it have been the same story or would it would it no. have gone through no i think it's i think it's really different now i mean keep in mind that most of the video game companies back then and this will make it toes curl costa they wrote their own engines and tools <laughs> I know. It's like, just shake uh, his head. And it was horrible. I mean, like even you, between the distribution as well, uh, the hardware uh, development costs, everything, right? The, produ- uh, the costs of production were so much higher just to be able to pump something out and get it into the market. Yeah. Well, you're thinking at least 30% of your overhead just went into code, mm. you know, and not programming features in the game, just maintaining the engine so it would run on a PlayStation 2. Um, and then you would pay a fortune for the workstations, and then you would pay thirty-five to forty grand a U.S. per submission mm. every time you sent them an ISO. Boom! Wow. The budget of an independent game, like it was brutal, mm. and the stakes are really high. And you're dealing with like the, my first video game. Every milestone, every six weeks, was eight hundred thousand dollars. Whoa. And, uh, and yeah, they ground you like you were dirt if you didn't give them 800 grand's worth. Let me yeah. tell you, I spent two weeks sitting at the Rockstar offices in New York waiting to meet Sam Hauser, and I never met him. 
Uh, all of his staff took a piece off me. I was like, I felt like I was in the, in a desert and the vultures were coming past and yeah, picking my flesh. God. You're that guy from Ratbag, right? <laughs> How's that? Let me see a build of that. And why are you going to do this? And have you thought about it? Every one of them had an opinion, of course, because they were just about to ship Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. So the egos were massive. Yeah. And Sam just literally sat in this cubicle with his giant, crazy, customized bicycle and had no roof on it, just screaming at Sony that I, I don't care about the content of the game. Ship it as it is. Was that was <laughs> it was right? It, was it San Andreas at the time? Was it Grand Theft Auto? No, it was Lights? it was GTA Numero Uno. Oh, wow, wow. It was the Gosh. first PlayStation Two one. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. We're talking a one, man. Yeah, it was oh far out. And then Vice was City crazy. was right up. Oh, GTA 3, then Vice City. Well, uh, crazy. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, that's right. GTA 3, because they did the two kind of isometric games before. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's yeah, another it was, it was. Remember, there was the first game where you could get out of the car. Mm. That? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They had Driver on PS1, but you could never get out of the actual car. That's right. And, <laughs> right, and at Ratbag, and I may disclose because it's long dead now, we did not have tech to get out of the car, and we were doing a drive at, driving car combat game. And I'm just <laughs> sitting there sweating because, like, he's going to ask the question. And I'm like, uh, maybe. <laughs> Can you be nice and give me us your entire code base? Yeah. But keep in mind that they were actually using RenderMan on that at the time before EA bought it and shut it down. Do you remember RenderMan? I was like, I it was this it. middleware that people used just to deal with getting stuff to work on the PlayStation 2 with its like 1.5 megabyte texture chip or whatever crazy nonsense it was. Yeah. And then EA, just to make it hard for other people to make console games, just bought RenderMan and closed it and like, just oh shut my it down. God. Thank, thank God are... for Unreal, man. Thank yeah. God for Unity. Thank God for Unreal. Unreal is definitely my current port of call just because how good they are with the developer community. Their, yeah. their tech help down at the void is unbelievable. Like mm. Jack is a superstar. Jack Condon is so nice, you know, and he's so helpful. And they're really like, look how hard that they're pushing that tech mm. to make it so much easier for yeah. non-technical artists to work in it. I mean, Whereas both, back then, not yeah. so much. Yeah, I mean, not both so both Unreal and Unity, the amount of documentation and, and articles and tutorials and, and all uh, of that stuff. I mean, And the community back, and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, back then, you just would not have had that. Definitely no, not. You, even even you with Unreal 3, right? I can, like, I can tell you, yeah. it was me on a banister talking to Tony Albright. And I'm like, hi, I'm Dan. Yeah. I'm a video game producer from New York, and I've never produced a video game before. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you a bunch of really stupid questions because the producer before me didn't have a clue. And we have no code base. And I have a milestone ship in four days. I kid you not. That was like my first day. And Tony's just like. <laughs> <laughs> We get up fine now, but like, boy, if you're going to have anyone who's going to school you on how to deal with, you know, optimization yeah. and all that other yeah. stuff, thank God Tony was there. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's a genius. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. I don't, I don't, have you ever had him on the show? I don't think you have. No, really. he's, he's uh, someone that I've, I've written on the list. For us to, yeah, he's been getting active in the local Discord and we've got a programming yeah. channel in there. And- he is like died in the wool, the most passionate game developer you'll ever meet. Like he is like, he cannot not make games. It's like in his DNA, he's yeah. so driven to do it and he's so generous and he's yeah. so much fun. He, Never go drinking with him while he will kill you. Oh yeah. 
He's not. He's just not human when it comes to his alcohol. This uh, this Italian Irish is uh, taking that. <laughs> oh, watch it, baby! <laughs> Tell you, man. Ah, it's long term damage. <laughs> man, he, he and I—I I can't remember. It was somebody's fiftieth, and I remember just the next morning, the two of us staring at each other, and he's just like, "Oh, I could use a coffee," and I could feel my my intestines melting out of me. Like I was just like, I can't believe he's standing. He's he's a he's a he's a he's an ox. Oh yeah. <laughs> but he's a great guy. Like he, he really, and and Tony is like again. He's like he's a classic example of those deeply technology based folks. Like he's he's absolutely a coder and a brilliant coder, but he's got that great critical thinking, that other side of his brain in terms of what is the experience we're trying to deliver and why it's mm. important. And that's why you know it was great to learn from him in terms of as a producer. What should I be asking this technical team for? Because you know. Yeah, like I did some web stuff, but not I didn't know anything in terms of real-time rendering and bespoke mm. code bases and physics simulations and like everything that a game engine did. I didn't have a clue. Mm. And it was like, all right, like what do you need and describe what you need and how the player interacts with it and I'll give you back a proposal in terms mm. of how we can execute that. And it was he was amazing. And Fran Afoolin as well. He was one of the first coders I worked with uh, on the game we were working on and he ended up um basically shipping L.A. Noir and I think he's at Ubisoft. No, he's at Riot now. They're all at Riot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of ex-Riot backers at Riot. Yeah. Bring them back to Adelaide. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I tell you. David Hewitt, another Ratbag grad, another Ratbag guy, just got uh, picked up as head of Monolith. Uh, oh, I saw you studios. commenting on that on LinkedIn. I did, yep, I did yeah. see that one as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And Cam Dunn's at Facebook. If anyone knows about Metaverse, we should ask him. And he used yeah. to be the chief technical officer at Ratbag. Like, they're all there. Yeah. We might, yeah. All we there. might need to get them on the show. Actually, while we're talking about that, can you weigh in, either sing your praises or whatever, about LinkedIn for the game development community? Because LinkedIn is not a game development tool, yet that's everything in my LinkedIn feed is game development connections getting made and always job openings and things like that. But it's not something that a lot of the students are getting uh, like used to, like they're not embracing it. Like some are, and they're the ones Mm. that also are doing, you know, great things, but you're very active on LinkedIn. Yeah. Well, it's because I've had to, you know, move in and out of doing game development just as a matter of survival for the years that I've been here when studios would collapse and I come back in. I, I just like, you know, I'll be honest. I like knowing what the competition's doing, mm. and if uh, and if they post on LinkedIn a lot, I like to keep my enemies close. Yeah, and yeah, it's like, what are they up to? What are they talking about? What are they looking at? And I find you get a lot of good information from there. But really, at the end of the day, it is like Facebook for jobs. You know, mm. yeah. yeah. There's a, there's often a lot of um, indecipherable self promotion and chatter and BS, and yeah, you have you have to take it with a grain of salt. I wouldn't say. For students, it's the best thing to do. For me, the best thing for students, I have to say I'm terrible at Discord. I mm. teach this writing class on Saturdays with a bunch of kids just how to write for things other than novels, basically. Yeah, right. And um, and a lot of them are really into games. And uh, and that's the only Discord channel I'm on. And I always forget to check it. <laughs> and I'm like, how do I invite somebody? And they're like, well, give me that, boomer, you idiot. Like, Did I change my avatar? <laughs> <laughs> I remember when we saw your avatar, Costa and I were like trying to figure out who is who, who is, is this that, guy? Who is this? Now, now this will blow your mind. So that is a drawing of me when I was 21 years old. Yeah, right. By my very, very, very old friend Florian Bachleda, mm-hmm. who we met when we were six. Oh wow! We went through school together. We went through art college together. 
and he works for Apple now. Motherfucker. Whoa. Ooh, wow. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Now you can swear on this show. He's, he's uh, yeah, he just picked up a gig like two years ago, right before COVID hit at Apple. Like he's, it's amazing, you know, and he is such a guy who was not digital. He was such a, he's a, he's a print, he was a print designer by trade for years. Wow. He worked in the newspaper and the publishing industries um, after I had went down here. And then he, he, he was creative director at Fast Company for a long time. That's where he was. And I think that's why Apple picked him up. So it's yeah. Anyway, yeah, that, that's, that's good. LinkedIn's good for that. No one yeah. flows up to. Well, that, yeah. <laughs> that's it. You. Had, but I think for sorry. Go on. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no I was gonna say, um, like, because you're definitely right. LinkedIn is this, um, like you know, I, even dare I say, it's like a borderline, almost toxic in a way, kind mm-hmm. of just this. Self-congratulatory. That's that's not the part that's that's, that's the gross it's part. All self-praise. Yeah, yeah, there's that, but it's the the thought that if you are new to the platform, you go, oh well, that's the only way I'm going to get noticed. Mm. It's like a mm. it, it's it's like I don't think it benefits people very very much. Like it it helps. Like I do like seeing some of the um, self-praises because it's a good way of seeing what works getting out, and it's like an important yeah. work and stuff like that. But it creates a toxic culture of people expect that you know no one's going to find out about me without these praises but you you use linkedin um very interestingly and like very very well of like you're not afraid to as you said with the competitors like you will just tag a person and be like this is great why aren't we doing this at i'm making this up but at stephen marshall or at you know like, <laughs> like yo i have done that <laughs> yeah yeah I'm pretty sure you have. like that is it's a unique way to do it um yeah. And 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 that's that's probably where I'm seeing like the the purpose of LinkedIn and and asking for your your opinion on it because I think there needs to be more of that more more Pe- calling people, people out on that platform. Well, people just don't yeah. just don't share their opinions on there. You know what I mean? Like it's it's, yeah. it's, this, it's this facade of uh, hey, congratulations, I did this. Congratulations! It's like no one's actually. And then when you see a comment from you know from Dan Thorson, you're like, you know, this is the real yeah, this is the real content here. <laughs> It's here's well, the opinion. I'm glad you see it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's here's well, the opinion. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. being very careful because I actually got a couple of warnings from LinkedIn to be nice. I really did. <laughs> really? Yeah, I did. It was a, like, auto-generated thing. Obviously, so just some algorithm said, like, you know, he, he was saying something potentially confrontational, critical, and just wasn't doing the happy clap crap. You know, and it, what's, what's the point? What's the point of being yeah. public? Like, I don't like Facebook. I don't do anything on Instagram. It's just, uh, mm. but, you know, I, I would say maybe getting back into that idea of what does your professional circle look like in the mm. modern age and being able to have robust commentary, like, you know, with including with our local government representatives, like they're the hired help. Mm. They're here to look after us. If they want to say, you know what, you're just not important enough for the election, I'll say it. Yeah. Know? Otherwise, I'm just going to keep tapping you and go, yeah. what about this? Yeah. What about this? And I haven't gotten as in their grill about the 10% and the lack of commitment on 10% yet <laughs> I, think, I think i'll i think i'll give them a christmas and let them know so for like christmas morning. people in government that watch that they'll just be like yeah whatever it's just the lesson yeah it's funny it's like in the last six months i've made a really definitive decision to just be clear about what i want to do and what matters to me in this beautiful community and if there's any legacy left behind let, let it be something that 
I care about and I believe that people around me care about that are in this industry and I don't give a shit about the other stuff and I will use that language. I just don't care. Mm. And now I'm getting all these people coming back, you oh, know, this guy says you're a dickhead. And it's like, I don't <laughs> care. I don't care about his agenda. I'm not going to help him. He consumes oxygen. Like the amount of hours that I have buried in this government, particularly the current one, the hundreds of hours of policy recommendations, attending roundtables and workshops, all without getting a penny out of it, mm. all out of my personal time in my life, and the total lack of action on their part to do anything mm. is mm. As astonishing. I should just hand them an invoice. Yeah. You know, so I just, I just don't care. Before you like, leave. You know, the next 12 months, I'm about, I'm about folks like you. I'm about investors. Like I really want people to go – that's a place we should put money. I think Mighty Kingdom stock is massively undervalued at the moment, given you know what what I know that they can do and what that team is like now. And I don't even know half of them. Like I, I went out to lunch with Phil Mays the other day, and he's like, "Oh, come on up, and you should." And I'm like, "I'm be embarrassed." <laughs> hey, it's a dead guy. We heard about you, and I'd just be like, "Who are you? I have no idea." There's like 20 of you, and I don't know who you are. I'm freak. I I totally freaked out. I think I curled up like this. Like, Cannot sidewalk. imagine you curling up. I was, man. No. Ask Phil next time you see him. It was just like, you know, I really felt like it was a head shorter. I was just like, ah, I'm terrified. I can't do it. I can't do it. And I can't. I, I, I can't. Like, the place means too much to you. But at the same time, it's just like it, it's not where. Uh, they didn't need me anymore, and I, and, and I shouldn't have been there. It just wasn't the right place to be um, getting to where they were getting. Tony Lawrence has got it totally in hand, and the crew that Phil's got around him now is like, geez, they're good. Like really good. Look where, yeah. look where folks like Martha Orley and everyone have come from. That's industry at scale. That's mm -hmm. cool, you know. Mm -hmm. And but you know, I can tell you, having lunch with Phil, he will never lose his his passion for the games industry and for good games. He like never think this guy is cold and corporate. No way in hell. Everyone on that floor matters to him. You know, and it'll make him old and gray like me real quick. But yeah. they do, because <laughs> he just keeps adding more. Yeah, like, oh, it's another ten people. <laughs> it's funny when one of the people that um got hired out of Flinders last year, Jasmine, she comes back to me. She goes, "I finally met Phil Mays. He's really into Lego." And Jasmine's a big Lego head. And I was like, "How did you not know that?" Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just like, yeah, we just talked about Lego for like half an hour. And I'm like, well, "Welcome to the industry, kid. That's great." <laughs> I remember I gave him a one of those brick, Lego brickheads of Captain Jack. I think I bought it for my sister, and I was like, oh, she's not going to build it." And then this one was still at Game Plus. And then we we're talking to him in the yeah, office, yeah. and I'm like, "I just saw that. I'm like, do you want this?" And he's like, "Really?" And then I like walk past the um, the old AIE room. And he's just in there just building it. And I'm like, oh, yep. that's so wholesome. <laughs> so good. And then everyone else is wondering where he is and why he's left the meeting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, he's he's great. He's such a dear friend. He's he's an awesome guy. And and it's funny too, like Tony Lawrence's twelve year old daughter's in the writing club I do on Saturday. It's like I can't escape. I can't escape. Yeah. You know? No, it'd be great. But you know, get, getting back to the LinkedIn and the and the professional stuff, it's like, you know, really take advantage of the community you have here because you guys are close and close knit. Mm. And, you know, it was it was noted by a lot of people outside the games industry how tight, for the most part, how tight everyone is. Mm. Like, you know, there's a little bit of rivalry, but not much. You know, people mm. tend to like they get along, you know. And and you know, again, there's notable exceptions from here and but I think there are exceptions. 
you know, and, uh, and I really give a lot of credit to you guys and, and to Patrick and Kathy for kind of being at the core of that and saying like, this is the indie scene and we're here and here's what we do and celebrating that. And I think LinkedIn is useful for that because mm. if you're, you know, your average government bureaucrat who definitely will look at LinkedIn because they post stuff, that's getting to your point. That's important. Like how you represent yourself on LinkedIn, if you care about the big end of town and, you know, we've, Government is pretty much it. It's the biggest industry in South Australia. Yeah. You know, it's really like government, defense, and education. I mean, that's pretty much it. Yeah. And a bit of wine. A bit of <laughs> yeah. wine. You know, but it, but if you want to have a profile there, it's it's good for you to drop your your stuff in there. And and yeah, I would encourage people to be a little opinionated as long as it's respectful. I always say this, and this is you know the only advice that I live by is that always be ruthless, but never be cruel. Mm. Right? Don't make it personal. Don't be nasty for the sake of being mm. nasty, but definitely call it out. Yeah. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And if you're wrong and they disagree with you, at least you get into a healthy debate, you know. Mm. And, you know, I totally respect where Dr. Lee's coming from, That you know, that psychology piece, which we haven't even touched on. Yeah. You know, I was really happy to be on that panel. Like, I disagree with, as you can tell, a lot of what he was saying. Mm. Like, you know, if, if you feel you have an issue playing games and you come to him, he, all he's going to see is people who have problems with, with games. Yeah. You know? And he's a person who said himself he's had issues with it. You know, whereas I, I it was really nice being on that panel, panel uh, sorry, panel, and Professor King, Daniel King, was the one who invited Katie and I to be there to balance it out. Sure. And I think Daniel, like, I thought his presentation was great. I don't know if you watched it. Yeah. That massive 80 slide deck. It's really good and fair and balanced. I think he's got a good message there. Yeah. I mean, that, that's... next time you be there. Oh, oh. <laughs> We're, we're, we'll, we'll be a partnership, Costa and I. Yeah. We'll, we can't. We'll, yeah, would you like him on the show? Uh, who, Daniel King? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That'd be terrific. Easy. Oh, man. Easy. He's lovely. We, we, we went out and had lunch. He's a big comic book nerd. We were both talking about Saga coming oh, back in January. Yeah. In, it's um, a great guy. In, uh, in, in that presentation, what, what was he making? He was making references to like Squid Game and stuff like that. Yeah. And we're like, ah. It was great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that gag. Is that, you know, me as a researcher, have uh, less of a chance of getting a research grant than surviving Squid Game, including the glass bridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he went right in on yeah, it. Yeah, it was like it was 10 cool. to 13% less than Squid Game. <laughs> I think it was down to 8%. It's like 8.3. Yeah, some, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. but, you know, you can hear what he's calling for, which I respect is more data and information about – you know, and, and I hope you guys agree with what I said. Nobody likes to do free-to-play games as designers. Mm, yeah. You know, we all just want to tell stories and have people pay for it up front, just like all the other people. Yeah. Unfortunately, the industry hasn't really evolved in that direction, and hopefully it will. Because, yeah, because definitely one yeah. of the things that, that made me want to go like, oh, I really want to talk to Dan about this because I know you've you've had to talk about it so much. And, you know, thanks for – thank you for humoring it on this one at least is um, because uh, everyone who's on that panel – um, except, unfortunately, Dr. Uh, Daniel King. I've never spoken to him, but everyone else, you know, Katie, uh, yourself, um, Dr. Kim, like these are all people that I, I know, um, mm. even you know, through the LinkedIn, um, but I all mm. have known in person and all have had great conversations with. And there's common mm. denominators with the, the lot of you, which is, um, you know, you're all your parents. You, well, I mean, um, Dr. Kim's Kim Kim was running off for his prenatal class yeah. that night. Yeah, he's just about. He's going to be a dad in December. He is. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. So he he mm. is um, that. So you know he'll have that. Um, uh, what do you call perspective? Perspective. That paternal instinct and stuff like that. So 
there is there's an un, there's underlying elements and um it's it's a great representation of different sides of a of a coin and as mm. you as you put before you said that if he's a child psychologist he's looking at it through the lens of a of child psychology um and an, addi- an addiction really an yeah. addiction yeah but but you know my point is only that you know he hangs a sign out and says if you got a problem with games come and talk yeah to yeah so, so he sees everything people he sees with, have problems with games that's every right. day that's right. yeah. Yeah. And, and it doesn't at all disavow that his patients uh, have need mm. and obviously you know he's providing a service mm. but you know what's what's the what's the objective view of that and i think that's probably what you're getting at alex is that you know for me, definitely for me being a very late father, the moment that kid is in your hands, yeah. your world changes. You become very objective. Yeah. You suddenly become far more sensitive to the threats in the environment around you. Absolutely. Um, but you want information and support. Like when I realized that my kid was not just quirky, but a bit different. And then I got him assessed and he's autistic. Like that, that was such a huge help for me because instead of me, being, you know, occasionally just like worried about them and like, you know, did I do something wrong or, oh, no, it's just his neurology. And there's a there's a support network I can put around him and, you know, relax. And he's down there guaranteed genshining impacting his butt off. Yeah. Right <laughs> and I'm going to unplug the computer any minute. Later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, so for, for those who, who um, aren't sure what we're talking about, um, uh, uh, Dr. Kim has um, had some – uh, spots on TV, and he also does a lot of work into um, addiction uh, with in video games, particularly um, children. Which was an interesting mm-hmm. part of the with, of the talk was talk, they were you know referring to gambling addiction and gaming addiction. But if you read between the lines, it was that the gambling addiction is only going to affect mainly the adults, but the gaming addiction uh, statistically impacts children or young and young people more. Um, but the important thing of of this talk that I found was that it's amongst many things was one is that it's that like whenever people talk about these gaming addictions, it's you usually see it through the lens of a um, today tonight or a current affair, or whatever it is, yep. and they make it sound like it's all of it. But if you listen to the the presentation, it's four percent, mm. which is um, playing nine plus hours a day which isn't mm. it is not just by definition four percent isn't the majority no it's not the majority mm. it's if you gather 100 people you have to throw a rock and hit four of those people and they're the ones who have this addiction where they're playing nine hours a day and that's who they're talking about in these scenarios so then when it starts getting watered down like one of the notes i made is that the people who are doing the research aren't the ones making the legislation for example no um and it's some of this appears to be getting lost it's just games are bad or games are good and then as um it's when uh, it sells yeah yeah well or more like <laughs> games are bad stop saying games are bad and then we lose the truth in the middle yeah because we we as, as a community we do we feel ostracized we get put on on the back foot because yeah. we don't have the same representation like if people said that you know this kind of horror film led to this many domestic violence incidents you would think about the horror film you wouldn't think about films mm. Or the whole yeah, heart, or the genre whole medium. Of film, yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. You know, and it's like when, you know, there was uh, explicit lyrics and very anti uh, establishment, um, uh, and, and, you know, and also some quite misogynistic language in early hip hop and stuff like that as well. There was a reaction to that, but they weren't banning records. Mm, yeah. Right? That's right. Whereas we are a them, yeah. the, that industry. Like we don't, that whole thing is tainted. 
you yeah. know, and you read some of that, that ridiculous ad uh, news limited article that ran where they're talking about loot boxes in Mass Effect, and it's like, uh, did they play a different game? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> loot boxes. What did you play? Yeah, and it was just like really just like badly articulated sensationalist journalism. You know, they them they them they them mm. after mm. your kids, predators. You know, and I think that's what was interesting about the panel. And specifically, you know, I might as well promote my, my current employer. Yeah. It's like it was a, a Flinders panel, a Flinders professor, Daniel mm. King, who's done and will continue to do a comprehensive study objectively in terms of what does the data show us. Mm. And, and what you're saying, Alex, is correct in that it's an edge case. But we still want to look at what in terms of predatory marketing, which is mm. the term he used, uh, leads to issues of, of, you know, not being able to put your phone down, basically not be able to walk away from it. And I think if you look at a lot of what uh, Dr. Lay, you know, Dr. Kim Lay is saying as well, uh, Dr. Kim Lee, sorry, uh, don't mean to mispronounce that. It's disrespectful. But, um, but if you look at a lot of what Dr. Kim's saying as well, is that there's a lot of issues around what he calls technology addiction. It's not specific, you know, when he's when he talking yeah. about games. It says games has certain components in it, particularly free-to-play stuff that just nags you and, and calls you back to it. Mm. And that it irritates the hell out of parents because it's so targeted at kids. Mm. Uh, and, you know, and suddenly you get the, the scary credit card bill. But what Daniel's looking at is a much broader piece of, you know, social media of the entire metaverse as it is. Yeah of how does that uh, lead to people ignoring their lives. And what I thought was interesting, and I think it's true, fact number one, which I didn't manage to bring up in that panel, Nielsen uh, ratings, August 2021, almost 12 hours a day of screen time, average American. 12 hours a day on average. And it's been like over 10 for a long time. I always look at that number every year. It goes up by about 20 minutes every year. COVID aside, it's like it wasn't that far beyond previous years where it was that out of whack. Only 50% of what they're recording is non-traditional linear screen. Mm -hmm. It's half of it is television broadcast, streaming services, and the other half, tiny little wedge of console games, actually quite tiny. Mm -hmm. In in terms of who they survey, a lot of it is mobile and tablet. So there's, there's obviously a lot of online gaming, but it could be that some of that time uh, on that device as well as in traditional social media like mm. Instagram and TikTok. So if you think about that, like if the average American is chewing up that much time in screen time, number one, no wonder they're all fat and lazy and crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to hide in my cabin in the woods yeah. and just ignore the culture around me when I move back there. Yeah. But but number two, like, like you said, it's like it's, it's not the amount of hours, and that's what Daniel was getting at. Mm. Like if you're a professional – like elite level gamer, you probably are putting, you know, six to seven hours a day in possibly training. Mm. Doesn't mean that it's unhealthy until the point where you cannot walk away from it. And I think that's where the push pull is. Actually, that's something I have to correct on what I, what I just said before was it wasn't, yeah, and you're right. It wasn't the nine hours that makes them the 4%. It was the nine hours. It was the 4% that won't eat or drink um, and they get agitated if they can't play. Um, yep. They're the ones that are making up the four percent, not just yeah playing for nine hours. Because otherwise, with what you just said of the average screen time being twelve hours in America would blow those stats. So it's yeah, yeah it's definitely from what I could see from the talk, it wasn't so much a gaming problem. It feels as though it's an internet problem and it's an analytics problem. And as you highlighted Which, in the talk and yeah. just said before, it's a marketing problem. Well, it's predatory even, it's, marketing. Predatory marketing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's even it's even deeper than that. It's it's the design of the game and and how that feeds into the marketing of it. And obviously, uh, you know, even in 
in user experience design, there's always, um, you know, predatory design, like ways of uh, making the user, you know, forcing the user into doing certain things. And, and I guess looking at it more deeply like that would be a great way of, of understanding like what, what is, what's right and what's wrong in, 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 and what influences that, um, you know, what influences that addiction and, and what pushes people that are prone to being addicted to, to games um, into doing so. So I think, you know, to, to broadly look at it and just say, yeah, okay, video games are bad. Mm. It's, you know, it's not really. And, and that's what I really liked about how Daniel opened it. Like if you can say that video games can be beneficial and good and you can say that video games can be bad, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It's not mutually exclusive. Yeah. And I think that's what Daniel's advocating yeah. for, which I appreciate. And for me, I've always said, and you know, you you and I have talked about this cost and, you know, you, you've come down and talked to a lot of the medical folks down at Flinders as well, is that essentially a good game is a behavioral training tool and it can mm. reward you for positive behavior just as it could for negative. And if you, you remove that predatory marketing part and, you know, that's why I was really happy to say that one of the last deals I got done, it really was, that Mighty Canyon was a deal with the Red Cross. Like they understood the benefits the unique qualities of creating a game that delivered really important information to a, a group that would ignore a lot of classroom education, but it will embed. They'll, they'll, they'll pick it up if they're actively involved in discovering mm-hmm. that information. And I think if we're conscious as, as an important part of culture and games are, and we're conscious about all these beautiful little Gen Z kids coming into the world, my, 16 year olds one of them like we have to understand that we need to speak in their language Mm. we need to respect the way in which they interact with with each other we can't see it as well in my day Mm. you know being an old fart i can't i gotta drop that conceit and and like i said at the end of it it's like talk to them talk to them if you look at the reports that the commissioner for children and young people did and if you have it i would i would suggest both of you do it and definitely to your audience as well. Look at what Helen Connolly did going back almost two years ago of literally going and listening to every school kid in the state and and every young person in the state and going, what's important to you without bias and games kept coming out over and over again as a really important part of their social fabric. And, and Helen was like, wow, it was a revelation to her because you know, it's not something that she's normally in. And it was a really, I think, very respectful and very intelligent and very objective view of what's happening right within our backyard. Yeah. And I mean, the, you know, the counterweight to these predatory like games that have predatory marketing techniques is like video games now being approved by the FDA to treat, you know, kids with ADHD. Like Endeavor RX? Yeah, yeah. that's right. And, it, you know, it's like the the perfect use case of uh video games actually positively benefiting someone's mental health or someone's yeah and, um, and look look at what Susanna Emery's doing man yeah that's yeah. that's amazing and yeah. how smart that is to use you know simply being able to go through what, what I always call fictional kind of metaphor to uh to explore what's a really painful and difficult and confronting experience for a person experiencing domestic violence and trauma Mm. to be able to do that in a way where it's just a game, Mm. but you know, and you drop your emotional guard and suddenly you really start taking in, wow, some of the the facts and details. I I think that's, that's brilliant. I'd love to see more of that, you know, really Mm. would, you know, I, I, I really, we're hopefully going to get there in the next few years where we start funding that kind of cultural content that has that interactive aspect. And I think metaverse would be probably the thing that's really going to bring that across the line is that we know this is the way in which people are going to talk to each other. 
mm-hmm. and, you know, in, mm-hmm. in years to come. And we have to use video game engines to deliver that experience. It's, yeah. it's would be pointless not to, wouldn't it? Yeah. Otherwise, you know, you can make a lot of money writing bespoke software, right, Costa? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Don't do it. There, there, thereby is madness. <laughs> Take it from me. It's like client services writing custom software for, you know, any anything less than a pool of ten million users is just a yeah. no-win situation. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, it just yeah. kills you in the end. That's right. I have to maintain this code base for the yeah. five people that use it. I want to shoot myself. <laughs> um, is there any? Do not promote suicide. No, that's fine. Was um. Is there, do you know of any work that's, um, like I know Costa just mentioned that FDA is approving games to help, uh, was it ADHD? Is there games, is there work in the games area to make games to uh, combat game addiction? Like, you know how like we're, uh, I, I know next to nothing about psychology, so I wouldn't even pretend to know what I'm talking about. But I know that with certain, you know, addictions to say substances, it's mm. not a matter of, just cutting them off cold turkey. It's no, using a bit no. of what they're addicted to mm. to wean them off. Have yeah, you heard of out. any yeah. kind of games mm. or something that do that? I have not, but I think that's a really, really interesting question for Susanna mm. the next time you do cafe. And uh, and again, let's get you in touch with uh, uh, Daniel King and, and see if he's got research on that. Mm. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I think because there is this the way it was classified back in 2018 and there's a lot of discussion around whether or not the data is relevant or valid and blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, it could be that there hasn't been a conscious um, like counter argument and somebody who's been proactive, but I think it's a really good question to ask mm-hmm. because I think like, as we were saying, it goes outside of just a single game. It's how to teach people not to be completely dependent and reliant on technology. Yeah. And and we look at mobile phone ma- manufacturers doing things like Zen modes on my OnePlus. OnePlus! <laughs> Promo! Love my OnePlus! <laughs> I had six OnePluses now. Um, but, you know, it's like like putting things on, on phones and other devices to kind of manage and communicate an abuse of screen time to, you know, uh, to folks and, yeah, and I think it's it's going to happen. Like, there's only so long that Facebook can really defend themselves mm. against some of the stuff that's getting thrown at them. And if they become a perv- a pervasive, like interstitial between every digital mm. component of you that exists in any channel mm. in the in the metaverse, like man, like you better watch it. That is an anti-monopoly. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's scary. Yeah, it's it's scary that people that you know. Facebook is obviously moving towards that direction given that people are now realizing this relationship that they have with their devices and they're wanting to move away and wanting to yeah, limit the time. And, yeah. and every other company, like you mentioned, OnePlus, Apple, they're, they're implementing these these uh, mechanisms for you to actually restrict the time that you use your devices. Mm. So yeah. it's a bit scary. Everyone. Yeah, Everyone. Facebook is saying we're going to do more. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, I think like to to be fair, you know, to Zuckerberg, the alien from another planet, because he, mm. he really is. You know, I'm glad he made a joke <laughs> about himself being a robot. Because, geez, man, um, water everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah, Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah. But it, you know, it's it. You know, all that aside, like I don't think the point he's making is that we are going to find 
another way to just have you completely detached from the physical reality around you. You know, I don't think that's what he's saying. Mm. I, I'm not saying that he's an ethical human being. I don't, I don't believe he is. I, I don't think people with that amount of wealth at that age really have any perspective at all, mm. to be honest. Like, really, you know, you're in Michael Jackson territory in terms of total sheltered weird that yeah, must be yeah. going on there, right? You know, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, like, a massive billion dollar corporation grows up around him and boom, there's all the people and shareholders make sure, you know, that their principal guy is like kind of mm-hmm. like grow the company, grow the company. I think it's, it's a tricky spot for him to be. And you certainly saw it with other people uh, throughout the years as well. Very, very wealthy people who suddenly come into wealth at a young age and like, how do you manage that when it come, happens really quickly? So I don't think it's about him saying that you're going to spend more time in your device. I just think he's saying there's going to be an alternate method in which mm-hmm. you're going to communicate with other people which is going to be more immersive it's going to be more 360 you know and i hope so because I, I really love the idea of augmented reality glasses not so that i'm like those blob people in wally who just sit in a chair with the screen <laughs> the whole day. <laughs> you know i'm starting to look like that but i, I don't want to be that <laughs> but uh you know it, it, I, I don't think that's necessarily the end game but i think the ability like we were talking about before it's like i would i would love to sit at a table and have breakfast with my dad. Mm. Yeah. I haven't seen him in three years now. And for him to whack on a pair of glasses, because my mom loves her iPad, hates computers, loves her iPad. You know, it, you know, it takes a picture. She can look at the picture. She can go on the Facebook. She can post the picture, you know, and it's just, it's like holding a book and, you know, and it's a format she gets. And for my dad just to sit there and be able to look him in the eye you know, because my sister's, you know, possibly wearing a pair of AR glasses off to one side of them and have a conversation like this with mm. him, but all sitting around having coffee in the morning when it's six o'clock at, you know, it's 3 a.m. my time, I guess, because he's in New York time. Yeah. would be cool. would mm, be cool. And my dad would be into that. Like, he'd yeah. just be like, oh, you're getting fat. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's about, it's about the, I guess, the, the way in which users interact with it. It's the user experience of it and what the, yeah. what the purpose of, of the, what the value is um, for the user to be actually in those experiences, as opposed yeah. to this, this broad term of metaverse. Like that doesn't really mean anything to, to your dad. Oh, I, Do you know it, what I mean? Yeah, exactly. It's a buzzword. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, but, but you're right. It's like, what's the use case? And, and I think that's where we have to pay, play. There's this old saying that Einstein said is, Man, uh, mankind, but humankind's ability to create technology far exceeds its ability to use it ethically. You know, mm. he was certainly talking about the atomic bomb when he said that. And I think you know that in this day and age, like we we don't know, but we can't put it back in the box. Mm. Yep. It's too late. Yeah, we just can't. The internet is a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. You know, and and if you think about those early days of like Xbox Live and actually them you know connecting you to other xbox players and recording achievements and stuff it's like it's an intrinsic part of games now like i certainly remember when it went from single player to multiplayer now pretty much everything is multiplayer has to have a multiplayer component Mm. um you know we we can't walk back from uh how games is is a part of the way in which we socialize and uh you know but what we can do is is look at its effect on our kids mm. uh look at, at its effect on ourselves make sure that we're just conscious of it and objective that's what i always come back to like 
people always say like your divorce was so amicable and you guys were so nice to each other and it's just like well we just didn't want to blame each other for something not working out as intended yeah and you know and i think that's the same thing with everything you interact with in your life if you're not happy with in my case your current government talk to them talk to them constructively but talk to them firmly mm. you know if you're concerned about a consumer product that you have and you're not happy with how somebody like facebook operates you know find a way to actively counteract that work with developers to create something that that you know you feel opposes that or or like you know dr Cameron, also like daniel king is evangelize a different position you know, and, and mm. to observe it. And it's really important because you guys are so culturally aware. That's, that's, you know, that's what I love about the game development community is that for so long we felt like outsiders because, you know, there aren't multiplexes and Academy Awards for what we do, you know, but at the same time, everybody plays games. Mm. So it's like what every 12 year old kid in every school wants to do, but they don't know the path to get there. So to be able to say, well, you know, actually I, I, I really enjoy it and I, I feel nourished by my career in the games industry, certainly me for the last 20 years. As hard as it's been, you got so many ups and downs. I wouldn't have chosen anything else because the people you meet are incredible because they're curious and they're discovering and there's no common reference point and we're all just kind of figuring it out. And, it's, and it, to me, that feels like what the entire connected metaverse is going to be is mm. this massive blank slate of technology yeah. where there's no right or wrong mm. it's all going to work or not work mm. you know and you know it's going to be like a flip of a coin and that's really exciting as long as we are participating yeah as as a culture not just sitting back and taking it in passively but participating in it contributing yeah. to it making Shape decisions it. about its use yeah. shaping it yeah yeah as if some of these like opinions and and discussions shouldn't shouldn't be mutually exclusive. Like there is, it feels like there yeah. is room for like, say what Dr. Kim is saying and what both well, of what you're saying, oh, like they, they both need equal consideration, but just said for the people who make the legislation, aren't the ones collecting the data or aren't the ones in the thick of it. So it's condensing it in a way that they are going to hear it. Yeah. And you know, and, and I think you touch on something really important. Um, both of you guys is that we you don't want to argue with anyone about your point of view mm. you want to state it but you don't want to be shouted at mm. and you don't want to shout at anyone else you know you 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 don't want to set fires and that's that's a really useful thing in this day and age of polarized insane mm. positioning and rhetoric like ah sooner we get away from the Murdoch media. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and really even CNN now, it's just like, Oh my God, he's just, they're just screaming at each other. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, you want to be an artist. You want to be an artist that makes beautiful experiences for people to enjoy. You want to share that with them. And you don't want them to yell at you for, you know, uh, uh, any representation within it because it was all done with the best of intention. Wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. The same with you, Costa. I know that. Like you, you really want to use all this amazing technology to, to heal people mm. and uh, to help with their, you know, mental well-being, and that, that's cool. Mm. You know, and you have an awesome podcast. So that's good yeah. too. <laughs> Questionable taste in guests. Yeah. <laughs> Godfather. <laughs> I'm going to tell I'll, you know. about the time. <laughs> You know, the, the cheek rub as well. You need the cat on the lap. Sleeping with the fishes. You know, my cousin asked about You're never going to get away from me, kid. Oh, we need that voice. 
in whatever <laughs> whatever form we need it um but it's 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 good to hear you know the reason moving back and and we'll always you know as you said we'll always keep in touch and this work you're putting in the in the local scene you know it's not going to be in vain it's it's something for it to build on and it feels like the end of uh, Rogue One. You're handing the data through the door. <laughs> We're grabbing it. Oh, oh when my he God. Gets so I'm just about <laughs> yeah. to be completely blitzed by an, an AT-AT now, right? Or am I standing there watching, you know, the, the shockwave coming? Yeah, yeah. So I, for me, can I be Can I be the um, K2SL? I want to be the robot. Oh, yeah. Most beautiful, tragic, and noble figure in that film. That's... I love that. I got, a, I got a giant replica of K2SL. I love K2SL. Oh, that fits perfectly. Yeah. You. <laughs> you are dead. Ball to see <laughs> yeah, like I, I'm, I'm again. I, I really appreciate that I have relevance. Uh, uh, that you know, because really, from the moment I stepped off the plane, I was just winging it, kid, mm. and you know, just trying to make sure I didn't get deported because the company I was working at was about to get defunded or something like that because they had my work visa, you know. Mm. And uh, and from then, it, it you know, this is the birthplace of my beautiful son. Yeah. And it's an incredible community. And I think increasingly it's a reflection of the world through through eyes of people like you and Costa. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the the generation of your son, like, I don't know how you feel Costa. He's a, Costa's a few years younger than me, but like, I'm definitely feeling like the, you know, I'm not part of Gen Z, for example. I don't know if you are Costa, but it's, it's border. You, you border can, yeah, yeah, border. You can see the way that they think is, is an even more progressive of the way my generation is or something like that. So oh my God. it's just going to get better. Their questions about gender and identity are amazing. Yeah. And they are profound and they are staunch, man. I go into a room full of 12 to 14 year olds every Saturday and we talk about story. And if I get a pronoun wrong, all right, you know, yeah. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> 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 like they really, you know, and and they are, and and they really like they feel that like we mm. refuse for anyone to tell us how we're going to live because the, you've destroyed the planet, you assholes. Mm, yeah, you know, you through your inaction, you have set us on a course of extraordinary destruction. And they don't believe in having kids. They don't want to own cars. You know, but what they want to do is they want to play together and talk to each other and share stories. And it's extraordinary to behold, man. Yeah. And they're really good. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Some of the stuff that comes out of these kids, like their characters and stuff they're doing are just like mind blowing. No way was I writing that well at their age. You know, it's cool. It's the amount of media they're exposed to as well. We're just connected. But the but the thing is, what's interesting for me, Alex, is I think Gen Z are the first ones that are going, hang on a second. This is all BS. Right. Nothing on the internet is Questioning real. It. Yeah. yeah, like I, today I was talking to Matt about – no, I was actually talking to a Tina who I had lunch with, and, and she had, I guess she'd be about 18 or 19 now. It's definitely Jen said. And, and, and she's saying, yeah, I played League of Legends once and got flamed uh, because they you know, they heard mm. my voice is feminine. And, and I was like, I'm never going to touch that again. And to make those decisions about what peer group she's going to be in and not, be t- and not tolerate abuse and stuff, I was like, that's cool, man. Yeah. Mm. That's cool. And get a creative writing degree. And a computer science degree. Why not? Yeah. Mm. I want to be all things. I don't care about barriers. I don't care about traditional career paths. They don't exist anymore. Mm. I don't care about the expectation of being a housewife or a house husband or even having a family or owning Mm. a car or Mm. land. Mm. You know, I want to be a citizen of the world that contributes in the way I I contribute. And it's really profound. And I think it's going to challenge a lot of game developers 
from your generation to be on the cusp of that for you guys to succeed. And, and, and I hope that you have the longevity that I've had in the industry. You're going to figure out how to get those kids to play your games. Good luck. That's, with that. Yeah. Right. And that's the interesting thing that they they have these different, you know, buying habits. They have these, oh, all yeah. these different um, gameplay habits, interests and all that sort of stuff. It, it'll be very interesting to see in the way that um, the game industry adapts to that or how they become, game developers and what they bring to mm. to the to the medium be very interesting. yeah uh, well i think you see the impact on roblox and, and certainly the yeah. fact that minecraft is still just so popular now mm. you know uh, in that age group and obviously genshin impact as well you know it's got to be the most successful uh chinese uh, original ip like in the history of screen like my god the amount of money it's making now and I think they said about 700 developers, you know, Whoa. and it, and it's funny too because sometimes my kid will say, oh, I don't like the representation in here, and I think they're this this part they're getting wrong, and they're you know, and I think this is a bit disrespectful about cultures, uh, you know, in, in terms of what they do. But he still accepts it because he likes the community around it, mm. and it's like I I think if we just talk to the developers and tell them not to do that, they will get better. And I was like, well, that's amazing. I would never think I'd walk up to Steven Spielberg and go, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. I would have cut, cut that a bit differently. But these <laughs> kids are just like they demand it. We don't like the end of that series. Make another one. Yeah, thank you. yeah. Oh, here we'll make our own. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, getting them to change how Sonic looks was a big uh, eye opener. <laughs> Wasn't that amazing? Yeah. Oh my god, that was the power of the wow. internet. <laughs> wow. Have you guys seen the Turtles yet? I haven't. I haven't gone out and seen. No, them. no. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really curious because I knew the reviews would probably be mixed because you know that's as as good as Marvel has been at bringing in filmmakers from way outside that genre. Chloe Zhao's a, a big, big, big leap uh, of faith, but I'm really curious because I love her films. I think she's a an amazing storyteller, and uh, I'm really curious to see how well it kind of fits into the you know the giant continuity monster that is yeah. the Marvel universe yeah yeah i gotta i gotta suss it definitely dan so what games are you playing i haven't asked you before we go what <laughs> games are you playing right now what did you play before we got on air oh man okay i actually i was going to bring this up on a cafe episode um i've been playing the youtube analytics have served me this game, let me boot up Steam because now I can't even remember what it's called. I thought, I thought you were playing the YouTube analytics. Oh, yeah, I'm playing. <laughs> That's an interesting game. Yeah, YouTube, YouTube analytics simulator. Game. Um, it's called Freeways. You like cats. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Freeways. It's yeah. it gives me anxiety. Basically, it's basically you. It's you're making <laughs> you're making uh, freeways, but. It, the the graphics are like Atari. It's a it's five dollars on Steam, right? It's you're just cool. making freeways. You got to connect roads to roads. I don't know why YouTube was like this guy will like this game probably because <laughs> they can see I'm up at three in the morning watching random videos. They're like he'll just watch anything. <laughs> Put this in front of him. Nah, it's because he likes Springsteen, dude. He's all <laughs> around, right? we got to talk now. Maybe <laughs> we're born. <laughs> Do you know how many people I tell that I was like. I know a guy who was at the hospital when he got hit by the truck and he had to cut his and hair. I tell, and I know a guy who knows where that incident derived from. So we're both talking about each other. I'm like, it's in the books. He had to cut his hair. And everyone's like, yeah, that's a great story. I'm like, you don't get yeah. it. Yeah. Springsteen would be a long-haired hippie. Unbelievable. Like 40 years ago, suddenly I have context as to why that guy was on a stretcher. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, For my... all the listeners who don't know what we're talking about, it's better that way. <laughs> 
I know, good luck getting a Gen Zer to appreciate that story. <laughs> Ew, who's that old guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you couldn't have long hair Ew. back then. It meant, what? <laughs> but um, yeah, no. So this game, it's you're creating freeways. But the part that gives me anxiety is it's all done with the mouse. You can't like it's meant to be an fun and well, it's meant to be an engineering game. But there's no draw a straight line. It's just draw it with the mouse. It's it's got like DOS style sounds and graphics like the Atari oh, and it's it's pretty midi, fun. Midi, midi. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. It's called Freeways. There's a bunch of other cool. ones that are up on Steam that are similar. They're like 3D graphics, but this is this one's 2D. So I thought, yeah, I'd give that a plug or a, give yeah, it a play. Cool. But yeah, that's what I've been playing. Yeah, how about you, Pastor? I have just started Guardians of the Galaxy, the new. Uh, ah. I can't remember who's who made who developed that. I think it was. It's not Rocksteady. No, no, no it's not Rocksteady. They only do Batman. Yeah, it's the it's the people that did the uh, the Avengers, the old the, the Avengers game that got bombed. That that was just oh, not right. critically, you know, panned. But this yeah. game is really good, and it's it's it's. Uh, it's refreshing to see Idos. Yep, yep, Idos. Yeah. Um, it's refreshing to see a just a single player game like. Story driven, yeah. narrative driven, yeah. you know, um, pay once. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the model. An old school yeah. game almost in that way. Um, and it's really good. Old like, school console game. Yeah. yeah old school cool. console game. Really cool. Uh, yeah. Really cool story. Really cool game mechanics. Um, yeah. Really enjoying it. Yeah. I, I just started playing Artful Escape because it's so nice and zen and it's so beautiful. What's that like? Wow. Artful Escape is, it's basically, you're essentially the son of Bob Dylan. Oh wow! And everybody just like does, awesome. just wants you to play your dad's folk music. You know, they don't <laughs> say it's Bob Dylan, but that's what it is. And just play the folk music. Play, and it's and you meet this girl and you start talking and it's essentially discovering the true musician that you actually want to be. And it gets really psychedelic and crazy. Wow. And you're like going full Hendrix by the time uh, you start. You know, I'm only only within the that first is few awesome. levels. Awesome. It's a be- it's a side scroll. It's a really simple wow. gameplay mechanic, but the the production design and everything else. And I, I'm pretty sure it's a Melbourne game. I think I think it's Australian, um, which is where I heard about it. It picked up a couple of awards, was that, um, but it's on uh, Steam. Artful Escape, yeah, this does look Artful familiar. Actually. Yeah, Artful yeah. Escape, yeah, yeah. But it's it's just really cool. And there's this little trick they pull where everyone's kind of wearing glasses and you never quite see their eyes. Yeah, and you just kind of project it's... yourself into the character. Really beautiful animations, brilliant voice work, sound work, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I, th- I think this sound. popped up in the Game Awards. I think it did pick up some yeah. awards, or it was yeah, nominated that's why at I least. Heard about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm pretty sure it picked up an award. Did it pick up an award? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's super fun. Shout out to whoever the hell made it. Uh, uh, Beethoven and Dinosaur. And Anna and Anna Perna. They're the publisher. Anna Perna. Yeah, they're the publisher. Yeah, a publisher. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I know Anna Perna is definitely Australian. And they, really? So, I'm pretty sure in some of the content. That. Or is it the other way around that they, everyone they pick up is Australian and Annapurna is overseas? Um, so Beethoven and Dinosaur. Oh, it says California. Australian. Headquartered right, in California. I got, I got it backwards then. <laughs> so it was a Be- Beethoven and Dinosaur. See, listen to my nice mechanical keyboard on you. It's good ASMR. Hey, this is the sound of me breaking the teeth of my enemies. <laughs> Yeah, made in Australia, so Melbourne-based, Beethoven and Dinosaur. There awesome. Yeah, yeah, shout out yeah. to them. That'd be great to get them on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's an absolutely beautiful game. Like as as a guy who loves comics, mm. they they do this two and a half D piece beautifully. Lots of just gorgeous parallax, stunning environments, really nice pace, really immersive, and it's just so zen and calming and fun. Yeah. yeah. 
And it's, you know, it's a platformer that clumsy shitheads like me can play. <laughs> Which is good. Win-win. Oh, oh, man, I, we could keep talking to you for so long. I have so yeah. many more <laughs> so many more questions I want to ask you. It might we, be a good we, thing to have a final one before you, you leave us for brighter but, shores. Yeah, but like I said, man, if you ever want me to pop into cafe and be the old man, I'd love to be the old man at the fire. Yeah. Because I, 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 I love listening to, to you guys, the four of you guys talk. You're great. Oh, thank and you. I, and I'll shut up and I won't dominate the conversation. No, just, it's you know, fine. Yeah. It's a really good balance. As we were talking to you before, we're telling you, we, 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 want, we want to experiment with the ability to have people just dial in. Like um, I was sending Costa and John some like references of what I was talking about. And it's like these like – 2000s era New York radio shows kind of thing where you felt oh, you wanted to call back radio kind of call back kind of but because it's all pre-recorded so we can't really do that but the idea but this technology like that the streaming platform gives the ability that you could just you know dial you in, just yeah. dial in you you click on the link you you come in for a bit if you just want to talk on your topic if you want to talk for the whole am thing. I allowed to dial in as different characters I'm not sure my face <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, you if, if you want yeah I mean <laughs> You you will have a yeah you have a little pixel sprite representation of you. Owe me, uh, Alex. You owe me fifty bucks. <laughs> You're definitely getting a thousand with interest. <laughs> well, we lost the cola. There's a bad reception right there. <laughs> Don't know what happened. Yep. But um, yeah, yeah. got a head for you. <laughs> no, it would it definitely be great to to get you on. Anytime, man. I'm always here for you guys. I love your work. Oh, absolutely love the show, man. Thank you so much. At an hour thank 55, you, so you are our, our longest <laughs> guest, our first guest, second guest. We have dominated our waves. As Phil would say, you got Dan talking, now you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Thanks for coming on. And until uh, next time. Take care thank of you. yourselves. And take care of yourselves, listeners. Thanks.